I invite you to turn your Bibles to two openings of Scripture tonight. One is Ephesians chapter 2, and then uh, the second is Romans chapter 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now notice that verse 8 particularly talks about faith being the vehicle for salvation. Now anytime, anytime the word uh, salvation or saved is used in the New Testament, it's from one of two Greek words. One is sozo and the other is soteria. I don't know if I'm saying them right, but that's, uh, that's the way they look like they should sound. And, uh, and they're both all-encompassing terms. There is a, a slight difference, but it's really not worth making a big deal about um, the words, for the most part, are interchangeable. And it's an all-inclusive word. It's an all-inclusive term. Now, the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 53, the work that the Messiah would do. Isaiah has divine revelation from God as to the work of the Messiah. And it tells us that surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Now, the word in the King uh, James translation it reads griefs and sorrows. But those same words that are translated griefs and sorrows in uh, Isaiah 53 are translated sickness and pains in other places. And then it goes on in Isaiah 53 verse 5 to tell us the work of Jesus on the cross. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. So it tells us four things that Jesus did, four things that his blood paid the price for infirmities and transgressions the difference in those terms in the way that they're used in that verse in Isaiah 53 means that he paid the price Jesus shed his blood for our personal sins and for the original sin Adam's original sin had to be taken care of had to be paid for because the Bible says the wages of sin is death and of course spiritual death came to rule and reign upon the earth sin and death talking about spiritual death which is separation from God, it began to reign on the earth, and so it had to be paid for. So Jesus paid for your sins, and he paid for Adam's sins, which makes us free from the law of sin and death. And then he also took the, the punishment on him, on himself, for our well-being. Now, where it says the chastisement of our peace was upon him in Isaiah 53, 5, that word peace is the word shalom. It means well-being in every area. It's translated a number of things throughout the Old Testament, not the least of which is prosperity. Very often the Bible uses the word peace, the word shalom, to talk about material blessings. For example, in Psalm 25, verse, I'm sorry, Psalm 35, verse 27, it says, The Lord delights in the prosperity of his servant. That word prosperity is the word shalom. And it's right in line with what the Bible is trying to instruct us in. It's telling us Jesus paid the price for our material well-being here on the earth. Well, you can see that that would certainly be God's intent because if you go back and look at the first time that God appeared unto Abram before his name was changed to Abraham, the covenant that God made with him or the agreement that he made with him was that he would bless him. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, I believe it is, says the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he has no sorrow to it. And the Bible tells us very clearly over a short period of time that God made Abraham very rich in silver and cattle and gold. And then the fourth thing that Isaiah 53, 5 says Jesus paid for with his own blood is healing from physical sickness. It says with his stripes or by his stripes, we are healed. Now, Isaiah is looking forward to the Messiah coming and paying the price. And so he says by his stripes, we are healed. But in the New Testament, after the resurrection, after Jesus appeared to the disciples, there are several references that identify that that price has already been paid. And so Peter says, writing to the church, for example, in 1 Peter 2.24, he says, with his stripes you were healed. The tense changed. Isaiah was looking forward to what he would do, so he said, by his stripes we are healed. Peter said, because of the resurrection, Jesus already paid the price. By his stripes you were healed. Were, past tense. Everything God's ever going to do about your healing and mine, he's already done. So when we see verses of Scripture like this in, Isaiah, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace are you saved through faith, it's telling us that faith is the vehicle whereby we receive everything Jesus did for us. Now turn with me over to Romans chapter 10. I think I, I told you to be ready with that one. Romans chapter 10, 
gives us wonderful, wonderful information about how salvation comes. Now, this word saved that we're going to read in just a moment is the word sozo. It's the uh, all-encompassing and all-inclusive term. I'll read the definition to you in just a moment. Romans chapter 10, let's start in verse 8. Paul is saying, what saith it? The what he's talking about is the righteousness which is by faith. So he says, the righteousness which is by faith says, the word is nigh thee even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. This word saved is the word soteria. I'm, I'm sorry, it's the word sozo. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now let me read you the definition of this word sozo. Uh, Well, where is it? Right here. Okay. It's from a primary word that means safe or to save, that is to deliver or protect, to heal, to preserve, to do well, to be made whole. That's what this word salvation means, or this word saved means that Paul uses in verse 9. Let's read it again. He says that if thou shalt confess, we know this salvation that comes by faith. We see from what Paul is telling us, just like he wrote to us in Ephesians 2, 8, that by grace are you saved through faith. Now he's going to tell you how that operation of faith works to bring you into salvation. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Healed, preserved, delivered, protected, and so forth. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Here's that word again. The all-inclusive word that means well-being in every area. Physically, spiritually, and in your souls as well. Now, here's the question, and this is something that... um, well, I don't want to leave the wrong impression. I started to say struggle with, but it's not a personal struggle. The struggle that I have is so many in the church world, maybe the majority of the church world in the modern day, so many in the church world think there's the necessity for faith to be born again. And that that's what Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 is talking about. And that's what this uh, passage in Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 talk about. But where in the world did we get the idea, did anybody get the idea, that faith is different in one area than it is another? See, if faith is the way we receive anything from God, and we can prove conclusively that it is. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, we know that's the, the faith that's necessary. We know that that's what's necessary for us to believe. And here, according to verse 9, to confess in order to come into the family of God. But where did faith become just exclusive for forgiveness of sins? I don't want to use the word salvation because as the Bible uses the word salvation, we'll say it again, it's an all-inclusive term. But the modern-day church has turned it into a, a, a buffet where you pick and choose what you want it to mean. Leave, leave the healing part alone. Leave the prosperity part alone. But we'll use our faith to be born again. Who was authorized in the church to change what faith was supposed to be used for? And here's one of the reasons for the dilemma and the the difficulty. We know that anybody, no matter what their past, no matter what they've done, no matter what they haven't done, no matter what their condition is, we know that if they'll simply believe that Jesus died for them on the cross and was raised again from the dead, if they'll simply believe that and confess Jesus as their Lord, They will be born again, no matter what, no matter where they come from, no matter what they've done, no matter what they haven't done, no matter who they've done it with, they shall be born again. And that born again experience, we cannot overemphasize the importance of it. But who's authorized to say that faith doesn't work in other areas too? Who is authorized in the church world? And I'm talking about the modern day church. It goes back even to uh, the early days of the church in some circles. But who is authorized to say that faith is necessary and will only work 
where the forgiveness of sins is concerned. You can't find it in the Bible. But in fact, if we'll believe that the Holy Ghost inspired Paul, who wrote these passages of Scripture that we've talked about outside of uh, Isaiah, if we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to say the things that he said the way that he said them, then this all-inclusive word that's used and translated saved or salvation in Romans chapter 10 perfectly lines up with what Paul said writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, where he's talking about God who will have all men to be saved, there's the all-inclusive word, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Who is authorized to take away healing from that word? Who is authorized to, to claim and to teach that the, salva the salvation, the all-inclusive term of salvation that the Holy Ghost inspired the writers of the Bible to use does no longer include healing from physical sickness. Who did that? Now, folks, here's, a, here's another part of the problem, part of the dilemma, and that is, just as we said, no matter who some, uh, no matter who it is, no matter what they've done, no matter how long they've done it, no matter who they did it with, we know that there is no sin too great for God to forgive, right? Nobody would argue against that. There might be some people that we would not necessarily want in the family of God if we take that logical reasoning out to its course. There may be people that Jesus died for that we don't think deserve salvation, there may be people that have done much harm and great tragedy and des destruction to other people on this earth that we might think salvation doesn't belong to. But the Bible says Jesus died for the sins of the world. That means it belongs to everybody. That means salvation belongs to Hitler just as much as it belongs to you and me. Now, from all indications, he never took hold of it. He never entered into the family of God. But he could have, if the Bible is true. If the Bible is true. The difficulty comes with the born-again experience always being an instant action or instant results. See, no matter what sin, no matter how much sin, no matter how long in sin, no matter who they are, no matter what we think about them, anybody that calls on the name of Jesus for salvation is born again on the spot instantly now some would take that principle and say that healing should be instant as well and folks to us comes from the 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 experience of trying to believe for healing or trying to take hold of healing just like we take hold of what the, world, the church world calls salvation, literally forgiveness of sins, without the same instant results. Now, in line with this, turn with me to Mark chapter 11. We know without a shadow of a doubt this thing called faith, which is believing in your heart, just like we read in Romans chapter 10. Believing in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead and confessing with your mouth that he's your sa uh, Savior. We know that that great work is an instant work. And it seems to me like a lot of the churches bailed out on some of the truth of the Word of God just because they didn't get instant results, which goes back to not having a clear understanding of how faith works. See, folks, if healing was instant in every case, then we'd be able to take hold, no matter how incurable the condition, we'd be able to take hold of healing on the spot no matter what. But if we could do that, if we could get instant results, what would we really have faith in? I submit to you that we'd be believing in the results instead of believing in the one that brings the results. Now, we don't want to limit it to just forgiveness of sins. We know that being baptized in the Holy Ghost is an instant proposition to those that will believe that he's been given to them and those that believe and expect to speak with other tongues. There's no delay on that. There's no time period on that. But that's not always the case when it comes to healing. Look in Mark chapter 11, verses of scripture I'm sure you're very familiar with. The backstory without reading it is the, the morning, uh, the day before 
Jesus and the disciples are walking down the road and they see a fig tree that Jesus assumes is, is bearing fruit. He gets to it and finds out there's no fruit on it, so he curses it. He says, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. Next morning they come by and the tree is dead. It's dried up from the roots. It disappeared. It, it died overnight. And Peter brings it to Jesus' attention. And it, the implied question is, how did this happen? And Jesus explains, beginning in verse 22, Jesus answering said unto them, have faith in God. Now, before we go any further, we have to recognize that just like this thing called faith, Ephesians 2, 8, by grace are you saved through faith. That faith that brings the forgiveness of sins, that faith that much of the church world says, that's the end of what your faith will do. That's the most you can get from God. Jesus is saying that faith works on physical things as well. He's saying faith doesn't just work in the spirit realm. See, the reason the new birth and the baptism of the Holy Ghost are instant received, instantly received is because there is no veil to pierce through. There is no veil of the flesh that has to be pierced through. It's a, I, I'm, I hesitate to use this term, but I don't know how, how better to say it. It's a spiritual transaction. Faith is exchanged for the result of the faith. Faith for salvation, faith for the redeeming power of God, faith for the forgiveness of sins is exchanged in the medium that God has identified. That faith is exchanged for the real thing, and we're born again. That faith to be filled with the Spirit is exchanged for the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. None of those things are hindered by the flesh. Now, some, somebody's believing when they choose to believe may be hindered by the flesh. That may be hindered by their experience or what the devil tries to do to block them or, or withhold from them. But you know as well as I do, anybody that decides to be saved is instantly saved. Anybody that chooses to be filled with the Holy Ghost is instantly filled with the Holy Ghost. Those are instant results because there is no flesh as a part of the transaction. But Jesus uses this thing called faith on the physical realm and he instructs us to do the same thing Jesus answering again he's talking about the tree have faith in God for verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass he shall have whatsoever he saith therefore I say unto you what things soever you desire when you pray Believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Now, folks, do you see where it says in verse 24, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them? That indicates that there are two. How do I say this? I'm trying to remember the way that Bosworth said it because he did it so well. That means that what you desire to receive is in two different forms. Anything you believe you receive by the prayer of faith is yours first spiritually. And through the confession of our mouth becomes yours naturally or physically. You can see why I'm having trouble with this and why it's something that I've struggled with. I don't struggle with the reality of it. I don't struggle with the truth of it. I struggle with the, way, the best way to, to communicate it. Because it seems to be a paradox. See, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to being born again, and that when I use the word salvation, if I don't explain what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the forgiveness of sins. The use of faith for the forgiveness of sins is always an instant result because there's no flesh to get in the way. The faith that brings you the baptism of the Holy Ghost in the same manner doesn't have flesh to deal with. Now, there may be a, a little bit of explanation needed when we're ministering the Holy Spirit, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, because we have to be aware of, we have to come to the knowledge that we're the ones being filled with the Spirit. We're the ones that do the talking in tongues, not God. So there may be a little bit of explanation to give to somebody before you minister the Holy Ghost to them, the baptism of the Holy Ghost, to tell them, here's what you can expect, and here's how we cooperate. But even at that, 
the operation of the flesh is so minimal that it becomes an instant receiver as well. But that's not always the case where healing is concerned. It's not always the case. So what do we do? What are we left with? Well, notice again, verse 23, Jesus is explaining this thing called faith that he says will work in the physical realm. Now, if it'll work on one thing in the physical realm, it'll work on anything in the physical realm. And so Jesus said in the definition or the explanation of this thing called faith that just killed the fig tree overnight. Jesus says, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Folks, what Jesus is telling us is that your confession is the operation of faith that reaches into heaven to take hold of what the Bible says Jesus purchased for us to bring it into, to manifest in the physical realm. To manifest in the physical realm. Now Jesus had some of the same things to deal with that we do. Nowadays you have to pretty much talk somebody into receiving their healing. In Jesus' day, for any number of reasons, most people believed in what Jesus was sent to do, what he said that he was sent to do. And so people received. The Bible gives us a few examples of people that were healed instantly. It gives us a few examples of people that were healed over a period of time through a process, the process of faith. So there's no hard and fast rule. And it's not true like some people seem to think that everybody Jesus ministered to was healed instantly. They weren't. There are a number of cases, not a lot, but a number of cases where people were healed as they went or where people began to amend from a certain hour and got better and better from that point forward. And so there were things that Jesus had to deal with that are very similar or really the same as what we have to deal with in trying to inspire people to faith. Now in Luke chapter 4, here's a great example of Jesus returning to his own hometown. We'll start in verse 16. It says, And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Notice the prominent place that healing takes and the fact that healing is for the physical body is included in the things Jesus said that God sent him to do. Now he's reading from Isaiah 61 that what we would recognize as Isaiah 61. And so he identifies with scriptures that are talking about the Messiah. Verse 20, and he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. That's King James English for saying these scriptures are talking about me. Jesus is identifying with the work of the Messiah. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Now, here they have a choice. They can believe what Jesus says about himself. They can believe, we're going to find out in just a few verses, that they've already heard about him doing miracles in Capernaum. So they could choose to believe based on what Jesus said and based on the reports of the healings and the miracles out of Capernaum. And if you do a study of Jesus' earthly ministry, you'll find out he had more miracles and more signs and more wonders in the city of Capernaum than he did any other place. Now that didn't cause everybody to believe in him. It didn't cause everybody to put aside the distractions of their lives and follow him. But he did more works in Capernaum than anywhere else he went. But what do they choose? Instead of what Jesus said, they bear witness that he, these were gracious words. 
it would have been easy to believe them. But their response is, isn't Joseph his father? See, folks, the Jews understood. They knew that there had to be a virgin birth for the Messiah. And they thought that because Jesus had grown up in Joseph and Mary's household, that that disqualified him. They thought Joseph was his father, and therefore he was disqualified from being the Messiah. Well, what about the miracles, though? What about the reports that you've heard from Capernaum? They knew they were true reports. They didn't say, well, Jesus couldn't be the Messiah because of his father. We know his father and his mother. And so I guess all those people from Capernaum are just trying to trick the world and lying about what happened. But they didn't. They simply said, is not this Joseph's son? And Jesus said unto them, you will surely say unto me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever that we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. Again, that's King James English for the people saying, Jesus identifying with the people saying, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I ought to do the same works and healings and wonders and signs and miracles here to prove who I am. And folks, Jesus never healed the sick to prove who he was. He wasn't sent to the earth to prove who he was. He was sent to the, to the world, to the earth, to show and reveal the character and the nature of God in, among other things, healing power and mercy. Jesus said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Prove it. Prove that you're the Messiah. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout the land. But none of them, none of the Jewish widows was Elijah sent to, but instead he was sent to Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. What about this makes them so mad? The examples he uses were recorded in the Old Testament to show us God's mercy and God's deliverance. But he wasn't sent to any of the Jewish widows. He was sent to Gentiles. The, both Elijah and Elisha were. But, so they get upset with this. They know that he's saying, you guys are too big for your britches here. You think you've got this figured out because you're so wise. But you're going to be shut out from the things of God. Now why would they be shut out or shut off from the things of God? Because they refuse to believe. Again, it's this operation of faith that makes the difference. Jesus is clearly telling them, if you'll simply believe what I told you to be true, which how hard would that be? You're standing there and looking at a guy that you already know has done miracles beyond anything that any man has ever done. You already know that, that the results that he's gotten in other places, Capernaum being one, are unlike anybody you've ever heard of before. At least give him the benefit of the doubt and don't shut off from what he's saying to be true. But they won't. So they were ready to kill him. They rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went their way, went his way. Now let me read to you from Mark chapter 6. Here's Mark's account of the same, uh, same time same incident beginning in verse 1 and he went out from thence and came into his own country and his disciples followed him and when the sabbath day was come he began to teach in the synagogue and many hearing him were astonished saying from whence has this man these things and what wisdom is this which is given unto him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands they've heard about his works they don't specify capernaum in this case in this account but they've heard that he's done miracles and wonders signs and wonders they know that. Verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? 
and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. What does it mean that they were offended at him? It means they refused to believe. It means they refused to accept the reading that Luke 4 tells us that he did from Isaiah 61. It means they refuse to accept that Jesus could be the Messiah. Again, they don't have to go all in. They just have to stay in a position where they give him the benefit of the doubt. If they hadn't put the brakes on him, then he would have been able to do some things that might have convinced them. But again, Mark's account makes it clear. They thought they knew his lineage. They thought they knew his parents. So Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor, but his own country. Well, that's, that's related in both Luke and Mark's account. And among his own kin and in his own house. Now notice verse 5. It says, and he could there do no mighty work. Please notice it does not say that he wouldn't. It says that he couldn't. Look up this word, could do no mighty work. And it literally means he was unable to do it. Now I know that cuts across what a lot of people thought about Jesus and the way that he ministered. Most people in the church world today think that Jesus, because he was the Son of God, could do anything he wanted to at the snap of a finger. He could do anything he wanted to whenever he wanted to. And it was all up to him because his purpose to be on the earth was to prove that he was the Messiah. We've already debunked that. Jesus always said, I didn't do the works of myself. I do the works of the Father that sent me. So he could there in his own hometown of Nazareth, he could there do no mighty work. Now he was able to lay hands on a few folks and get them healed that didn't have much wrong with them. A few folks with minor ailments. The word literally is sickly. It says, and he could there do no mighty works, but he laid his hands upon a few sickly folks and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief and went around about their cities or their villages teaching. Paul told us in Romans chapter 10 that so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So the only way he can overcome their unbelief, their refusal to believe, and folks, that's all unbelief is. Unbelief is refusal to accept God's word as truth. Now that's not the definition somebody in unbelief wants to hear, but it's exactly what it is. It's exactly what it is. So they refused to accept Jesus' claim to be the one that Isaiah 61 is written to or written about. They refused to accept it. Now, folks, the Bible tells us a lot about what Jesus did in other places, too. For example, these people knew that God healed. They had to have heard about the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. These were common knowledge circumstances. These are things that everybody knew. Everybody must have known. Everybody in that part of the the country or the nation of Israel had to have known that an angel would come down at certain times and stir the water. And the first one in, God is healing. These were commonly reported situations and incidents. They don't question whether God heals. They don't question whether God sometimes brings healing to the sick. They just refuse to believe Jesus is the agent for bringing that healing power. And they thought they had a good reason to refuse to believe it. They thought because they knew his father and mother that that was a good enough reason to reject Jesus as being the Messiah. Even though he's done these miracle works, even though God uses people at different times, They know about Elisha. They know about Naaman the Syrian being healed. They know that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has healing power and at his discretion ministers that healing power to others, to the sick. But they simply refuse Jesus as being the agent of that healing work. And it kept their city from receiving what Jesus was sent to do. Now here's my question. We see their response. We see that they refused to believe, and Jesus could not do anything. He could do no mighty works. He didn't have any blind eyes open. No cripples were healed. No lepers were cleansed. There's no big thing, sickness or disease, that he was able to, to, uh, to heal people from. 
The only thing he was able to do is heal a few folks with not too much wrong with them. So was he anointed or not? Luke 4, verse 18, where we read that he read from Isaiah chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. When Jesus said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears, he's saying, I'm the one that he's talking about, and I'm here with the anointing to do these things. Now, most people would think if they could just get in a place, maybe we, if we could travel back in time and sit in one of Jesus' services, we could just be in the physical location where Jesus was that they could receive their healing or deliverance or whatever else they need from God. But these people were in his physical presence. That didn't bring them any results. You know as well as I do that there are a lot of people in our lifetimes that we've heard say these things or heard about saying these things. If only I could see a miracle, then I'd believe. Folks, if you're not willing to believe without a miracle, you'll never believe when you see one. Just as Jesus was anointed to heal the sick, he was anointed to, to bring sight to the blind. He was anointed to do all the things that Luke uh, 4:18 and 19 tell us. Nobody took advantage of it. Nobody got the benefit of it because they refused to believe. Now, we don't live in that same day. We don't live in a place or at a time where we could go to wherever Jesus was and be a part of his service or touch the hem of his garment like the woman with the issue of blood did in Mark chapter 5. We live in a day where we have to rely on that which is unseen if we're going to take hold of what God has provided for us and manifest that or bring that into a physical reality. How do we do that? Folks, that's why confession is so important. The understanding of, of confession, and remember the church started off this way. In the early days, the first century of the church, Christianity was called the great confession. When the Romans were persecuting the church, putting many people to death, it was all about whether or not they would hold on to their confession or whether they would recant. I believe it was the Romans that, that coined the, ter the term or coined the phrase, the great confession for Christianity. Who are you going to say is Lord, Jesus or Caesar? Now, most people that I know of, when you start talking about the martyrs, start talking about situations in history that, uh, that people were uh, put to death for their faith, given a chance to recant and save their lives. And according to the early church records, there were a lot of people that did. There were a lot of people that changed. A lot of people gave up their confession of Jesus as Lord and Savior to spare their own lives. It becomes something that the early church fathers had to write to individual churches and cities about how to handle those people. They, their lives were spared, but now they want to come back in the church and fellowship with people. What do you do? How do you treat them? These were real issues that took place in the first century. Some of the church fathers, the early church fathers, even the generation after the apostles, gave specific instructions on how to treat people and how to receive them and what to do. Because they're recanting Jesus to spare their own lives didn't take away their salvation. It just took away their testimony. There are even uh, historical accounts of where people that had recanted and confessed Caesar as Lord, that they wound up taking their own lives because they felt so guilty about what they had done. Well, remember, Peter denied Jesus three times the night before his crucifixion. It's not a new concept. Recanting or denying is not a new concept. But the difference is, Peter wasn't born again. He just denied being a follower of Jesus. 
what would it take for somebody that was saved and knew the benefit and the value of their salvation, the redemptive work of God on the inside of them? What would it take for somebody like that to recant? Well, apparently a number of them did. But then what? Can you imagine how life would be miserable knowing that you denied the Lord? So even in that respect, Satan's work has always been pretty much the same thing. And that is to try to get you to say something that contradicts the truth of the word. If he can get you talking defeat, if he can get you talking sickness, if he can get you talking in any way that contradicts what the truth of the word says. Or contradicts what the word says because it's true. Then he's got you. That's why our confession is so important. Our confession is like a rope that goes behind a curtain. And we can only imagine from the instructions that the Word of God gives us what's attached to the other end of that rope because we can't see it. And our confession is like pulling that rope to us. Sooner or later, it'll come out of the, from behind the curtain. And we'll see it in this realm. Finally, turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 gives us the example of Abraham and his faith. Now, Abraham is certainly Old Covenant. But the Holy Ghost gives us Abraham's example because the principle of faith is the same. The principle of faith hasn't changed a bit in the New Covenant or the church age. It's still the same principle. So let's look at what Abraham did. Abraham's results were not instant. He had to believe for a period of time. So let's see what the Bible tells us about how to stand in faith, how to believe God for healing over a period of time. Beginning in verse 17, as it is written, here's what God told Abraham, I have made thee a father of many nations. Notice God said, I've already done it. You go back and look at Genesis and the story of Abraham and his uh, having a son, he and Sarah having a son named Isaac. You'll find out that before God ever did anything, before any change was made, before any circumstances changed in their flesh, God declared to Abraham, I have made thee a father of many nations. And folks, please understand, God always talks in past tense. When it comes to the things that he's done for us through Jesus, he always speaks in the past tense. Peter said, 1 Peter 2.24, speaking of Jesus on the cross, it says, by his stripes you were healed. That means if you're looking forward to be healed, you're looking in the wrong direction. We are to look back to what Jesus has done and what the Bible tells us that he accomplished for us through the shedding of his blood. So God said to Abraham, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Abraham, one of the first things the Bible tells us about Abraham's faith is that he understood the importance of saying things like God said them instead of how they appear. When Abraham starts calling things, as they, uh, calling things that be not as though they were, Abraham is simply agreeing with God saying, yes, I am the father of many nations. Has he had kids? Not the one that he was promised. He tried to help God out and had a, a son, Ishmael, by Sarah's handmaid named Hagar. But that was not the son that God promised him. God said, I'll bless him because he's yours, but that's not the son of promise. So Abraham understands one of the first critical characteristics or factors. He realizes that you've got to say what God said no matter what things look like. Now, it's impossible for God to lie. Here's one thing that people struggle with sometimes, and that is the devil will come to them when they're calling things that be not as though they were. When they're confessing the word, the devil will come to them and say, you're lying. Well, folks, a good answer for that, a good response to the devil for that is always, it's impossible for God to lie, and I'm just saying what he said. So Abraham agreed with God. He began to call himself the father of many nations just like God did. He began to call those things which be not though, as though they were. 
Verse 18, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. He knows that he's not yet the father of nations in the physical realm. But that doesn't change the fact that God had made him the father of nations and had declared it. So he wants to believe whatever he's supposed to believe. He wants to operate in the way that he's supposed to operate so that he might become the father of many nations. So that he might become the father of many nations. Now, did he have any natural circumstances or physical evidence to support that? No, not a bit. Not a bit. Now, the Bible tells us that they were old. Abraham and Sarah were too old to have children. The Bible specifically tells us that the, the manner of women had ceased to be in, in uh, Sarah. In other words, she's, not, she's gone through menopause. She's not in, of childbearing years. So there have to be some changes that occur in her body for her to bear a child. Abraham's too old to have children. He's not producing reproductively in the way that the male body, human body, has to function in order to have a child. Simply put, God has to give Abraham some of whatever change is necessary for him to produce sperm. And Sarah has to create or produce eggs, which she stopped and ceased many years before in her life. The change that has to be made, as impossible as it seems, is on the cellular level. God has to do something with Abraham and Sarah so that they each produce, their bodies each produce what is necessary for her to get pregnant. Now the Bible also tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that through faith Sarah receives strength to conceive. I'm not sure exactly what that means. It could be that that uh, phrase strength to conceive simply means her body to produce an egg, but it also could mean along with the producing of that egg, God had to strengthen her in some way, maybe just physically, so that she could carry this baby to full term. But whatever it is that has to be done is done on the cellular level. It's microscopic. It's unseen because it's too small. Now, Abraham knows that's what God has promised him. I don't know what he knew about reproduction. I don't know if science in those days identified sperm and egg and, and all the other parts of the reproductive system. I have no idea about any of that. But we know through science the things that are necessary to bring a child to, to successful delivery. And these are at least part of what had to happen in their bodies. Did Abraham have anything in his body or, or Sarah had anything in her body, the way that those bodies were acting and, and operating? Did he have anything to encourage him that they could have a child? Well, here it says he didn't have any natural hope. So that must mean he had no physical evidence. Well, then where's he going to get his hope? Remember Hebrews 11.1 1 says faith is the substance of things hoped for. If you don't have hope, you can't have any faith. If Abraham and Sarah can't come up with some kind of hope, some basis or foundation for hope, there's no way that they can receive what God wants them to have. Now, it's the will of God for them to have a child. But just the will of God in and of itself is not what's going to produce results. God wanted Nazareth to receive the anointing, the healing power of God so that people could be healed in the city. God's will was for every sick person in that town to be healed. But that's not what determined what happened, is it? God will not usurp man's choice. The people in Nazareth chose to reject Jesus as the Messiah. And so even though the power of God was available to heal the sick, to do signs and wonders and healing miracles, they didn't occur. Well, in the same manner, even though God wants to perform a miracle for Abraham and Sarah, if he can't get them believing, if he can't get them operating in faith, then he can't bring about what he wants to happen. And folks, the same thing's true for you and me. He has to have our cooperation. So what did Abraham do? How's he going to come up with any hope as the basis or foundation for his faith? The only thing he's got to hope in is what God has told him. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations, According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. 
You remember when Abraham was told this from God or by God? He took him out and showed him the stars of the sky and said, so shall your seed be. He showed him an innumerable number of stars and planets in the nighttime sky. And he said, your children, your seed, your descendants will be just like that. Well, they're not going to be just like that if he doesn't have any kids. So since Abraham had no natural evidence in his body, since Sarah had no natural evidence of reproduction in her body, then they had to believe simply in what God had said. God said, your seed will be as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. So they believed according to what God said. In other words, they kept their eyes on the word. And that's exactly what the next two verses tell us. It says, in being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. The NIV says, the North, uh, um, the NIV says of this, Looking under the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief, nor considered his body now dead. Now, folks, I've got a question for you. Is his body dead? Reproductively, yeah. Is Sarah's body dead? Reproductively, yes. So what is he doing? He's, he's deciding. He's making a choice. He makes a determination to believe that what God said was more true than what he could see in his flesh. He makes a decision to accept what God said, what God promised to be true, no matter what it looked like, no matter what he felt or didn't feel in his body. He chose to believe what God said. So what does he do with the deadness of his body? He doesn't deny it. He just doesn't consider it. He chose to believe that the deadness of his body was not stronger than the promise of God. He chose to believe that the promise of God was strong enough to bring about results no matter what it looked like, no matter how it felt. Being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God. This word stagger is the word waver. Remember in James chapter 1 it says, Ask, and when you seek wisdom, ask in faith, nothing wavering, for a wave of the sea is driven with the wind and tossed. It says, let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. What that's simply telling us is, you can't believe God one day and then believe the circumstances the next. He can't believe God's promise one day and the next day believe in the deadness of their bodies. He's got to be consistent. He's got to make his choice. And folks, everybody faces this same choice. Everybody that believes that God's healing power has been done away with in this modern day has made a choice. They've chosen what they think based on whatever reason, whether it's teaching that they've received or something else. They've chosen to accept that to be more true than what God's word says, that by his stripes, by Jesus' stripes, you were healed. Abraham just made a good choice. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith. What does strong faith look like? He was strong in faith, giving glory to God. The first characteristic of Abraham's faith identified as strong faith. Remember, Jesus marveled at the people in Nazareth. He marveled because of their unbelief. But strong faith does something else. Strong faith gives glory to God. Abraham is praising God for the son he hasn't yet had. He's praising God for the son that Sarah has not yet conceived. He's praising God because of God's truth revealed in the promise that he made. So he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Here's the second characteristic it mentions. Second characteristic of strong faith and being fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Here's what the righteousness, which is of faith, says. Remember, that's where we started in Romans chapter 10, verse 8. What saith it? The righteousness of faith says this. It says God's word is true no matter what it looks like. It says. And remember, says so what you say, what Abraham said, 
had everything to do with pulling from the, uh, the, the unseen realm the physical and material blessing of healing for the body. It's that rope, that confession that Satan wants to make you give up. That's what he wants you to turn loose of. But if we'll hold fast the, faith, the steadfast faith, if we'll hold fast our confession, it's like pulling that rope to us. Inch by inch by inch. And since that rope is the blessing of God that he's promised, it's impossible for it not to become a reality. It may not come overnight. may not come as fast as we want to or want it to. But the devil is not strong enough to stop it if we'll maintain the profession of our faith. Abraham was fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform. Now, to Abraham, it looked like some huge, huge thing. He's 100 and Sarah's 90. We're too old to have children. But folks, think about how small a change God had to make to their bodies to bring to them the promised child, the son Isaac that he has promised them. He had to do something that was too small for man to even see. Is God too big to take care of the cells of the man's body? When Moses was instructed by God to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, you remember one of Moses' uh, complaints was that he stuttered. You remember what God said? He said, who made man's mouth? If I made you, I can make you to talk right. If God made Abraham and Sarah, he could make what was necessary for them to have children. Folks, if God made your body, which thank God he did, then how hard would it be for him to make some cellular change for you and I to take hold of and walk away in the health of God? He made your flesh. He can make whatever changes are necessary in response to us believing and confessing his word and bring us into victory every time. Every time. This place, this planet, this world we live in is a miracle. Everything about it is a miracle. Everything about it is so finely tuned that if any number of things went wrong, if just one of any number of things went wrong, it would be the end of human life on this planet. But God keeps every bit of it going by the word of his power. He upholds every bit of this, un, this, this natural realm by the word of his power. Even God's word is identified as that which makes the material realm to be. It's what he created the material realm from. It's what he keeps it and sustains it by. How big is God, does God have to be to change what's necessary in your body or mind to bring his healing power to fruition? This is small stuff, folks. God has identified his will for you as divine health. He's identified that he's willing and able to do anything and everything that's necessary for us to take hold of that divine health and walk in it. And he is well able to perform what he's promised. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you so much for your healing mercy. We thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. We found by experience, Lord, that there's nothing that's too hard for you. We found from experience that if we'll hold fast the profession of our faith, nothing wavering, that your healing power will raise us up. Your healing mercy will sustain us. So, Father, we thank you that Jesus took upon himself our sickness and bare our infirmities and that with his stripes we were healed. We say, as you said, Father, we were healed by the stripes of Jesus. We're not looking to be healed. We're thanking you for the privilege to take hold of what has been done, the healing work of Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection that restores us to divine health. We thank you, Father, that your word is eternal and not one small part of your word will ever come to pass, fail to come to pass. So we declare, even as you've said, that we were healed by the stripes of Jesus. Thank you that healing is ours. 
Healing will always be ours through the maintaining of our profession of faith. Thank you, Father, that we have what we say. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's lift our hands and just thank him. We bless you, Lord. We bless you, Holy Spirit. We thank you for manifesting yourself here in our presence, here in our midst. We reach up and take hold of, by faith, take hold of our healing. We take hold of your healing power because we have prayed the prayer of faith. We can say that we believe we receive our healing. We thank you, Father, for raising us up, even as your word says. Oh, Lord, you've been so good to us. You've shown us your power and your strength when we didn't have any. You've shown us your deliverance, even your healing mercy, when we were unable to do things for ourselves. But, Father, our part has been and always will be to simply believe you. We have faith in you, Father. We thank you that your word is true, and we thank you that our words come to pass. We thank you that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. We're healed by the stripes of Jesus. Folks, the presence of the Lord is here. The glory of the Lord is hanging just over your head. Whatever you need, just reach up and take hold of it. He's here to minister to you. He's here to bring you strength. He's here to impart God's healing power to your body. Just take hold of it. By faith. Just say, I believe I received my healing. 